Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. And as a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Candace. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. Um, and today's program is updates in the treatment of estrogen receptor, ER positive, progesterone receptor, PR positive, and HER2 positive breast cancer. And today's program is part two of highlights from the 40th Annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, or SABCS. And I know many of you, this is a yearly program that we offer every year, and um, I, I know that many of you wait for these um, updates every year. This is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations, as well as breast cancer organizations. And really because of uh, this collaboration and because of your interest in this topic, this is really an important topic for many of you who are living with breast cancer, um, we have on the call today over 506 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from all different regions of the United States, and we also have international participants from Canada, India, Singapore, Taiwan, the United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So it's a really a bit of a global call, and um, we really are delighted with all of you on the call today. Today's program is supported by AbbVie, Celgene Corporation, Novartis Oncology, Pfizer, a grant from Genentech, and Hologic Inc., The Science of Sure. And we um, thank them for their support of this program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Sarah Tulaney. Dr. Tulaney is Associate Director, Clinical Research, Breast Oncology, Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers, Senior Physician, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Tulaney is going to be addressing updates from SABCS on the treatment of ER, PR, and HER2-positive breast cancer, increasing role of diagnostic testing in informing treatment choices, and key questions to ask your healthcare team. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Tulaney. Thank you so much. Um, so I think there's a lot of very interesting data that came out at San Antonio, and I thought I could just review some of the highlights um, that I thought were, were interesting from the meeting. So I think one question that often comes up is the duration of hormonal therapy. So in patients who have hormone receptor positive HER2-negative breast cancer, after completion of breast surgery and radiation and chemotherapy if needed, we often recommend going on to hormonal therapy. And over the years, it's come to be a big question of, well, how long should we be giving these hormonal agents for? And more recently, the question has been, how long specifically should we be giving aromatase inhibitors for? So aromatase inhibitors are pills that really work by lowering estrogen concentration and have been shown to prevent breast cancer recurrences, reducing risk almost by half in women with hormone receptor positive disease. So they're highly effective therapies. But the question is, is should we be giving more than just the original five-year recommendation for these pills? And so over the years, there have been several trials that have been done looking at extending duration of hormonal therapy. And last year, not in, sorry, not in 2017, 2016 at SABCS, we had seen data that had been presented 
showing that there was potentially a benefit to extending duration of aromatase inhibitors beyond five years, particularly in patients who had higher risk disease. So in patients who had lymph node involvement and had previously received chemotherapy, taking 10 years of an aromatase inhibitor seemed to be better than five years when looking at a subgroup analysis of a larger trial. But one question that was asked where data was presented at San Antonio in, in 2017 was from the ABCSG16 trial. This trial really looked, should we be giving aromatase inhibitors beyond the five years for two additional years, so giving a total of seven years, or giving five additional years so that patients receive a total of 10 years? Really suggesting, you know, is 10 really better than seven, or is seven really enough? Um, and so in this trial, women had gotten hormonal therapy for five years. The hormones that they could have gotten in the first five years were a mix. So they could have gotten tamoxifen or aromatase inhibition or a little bit of each uh, over the five years. And then they were randomized to two more years of an aromatase inhibitor or five more years of the aromatase inhibitor. And what the trial suggested was there was really no benefit to 10 years compared to seven years. And so the people who, who conducted this study concluded that seven years really should be sufficient. I think there's a lot of caveats, though, with this information. Uh, you know, this trial enrolled patients who, about half of whom had stage one breast cancer, so half the patients had lower risk tumors. And so it's hard to know how this data applies, you know, to a generalized population. And I think particularly for women who have higher risk disease, you know, we have data from another trial that suggested that 10 years, um, you know, was beneficial in, in higher risk patients. And so my takeaway from these data was that longer duration hormonal therapy is probably good for patients who have high risk cancer, that seven years may be sufficient for some patients, um, and that 10 years may be sufficient for our higher risk patients. Um, but I think the bottom line is patients should not be getting more than 10 years of therapy, that 10 years I think is really sufficient, that five years may be good for someone with particularly low-risk cancer, and that going somewhere between seven to 10 years for higher-risk patients is probably reasonable. And so the way I usually start the conversation is I say, well, we're going to give you a minimum of five years. We're not going to give you more than 10 years. And we're going to kind of see how it goes. Because the problem with longer-duration hormones is it does cause side effects. So we do know that giving you know, aromatase inhibitors for seven to 10 years is associated with higher risks of fractures because these drugs do thin the bones and, and put patients at risk for fracture. And so I am monitoring patients' bone health over the years, and certainly, you know, if a patient is developing very thin bones, you know, it may not be wise to give them longer therapy with an aromatase inhibitor. And so sometimes that in itself is a reason to stop. And, and certainly tolerability is also very important. And so I think it's really a discussion with your oncologist about how long hormones should be given, better understanding the characteristics of your initial breast cancer diagnosis, and then taking into account any side effects that may have arisen over the years. But I, I think it was interesting to know that, you know, seven may be sufficient for, for some patients. I think another um, very interesting topic that came up at San Antonio was looking at these drugs called CDK4-6 inhibitors. These are oral pills that I think are very exciting drugs, and they seem to be very beneficial for women who have hormone receptor positive HER2-negative breast cancer. 
they work by really taking a cell that's dividing and halting it so that it no longer can grow and divide. Um, and this pathway that they're turning off is critical in tumors that are hormone receptor positive. And so there are now three CDK4-6 inhibitors that exist, and one is palbocyclib, another is ribocyclib, and the third one is abemocyclib. And these drugs have all been studied in combination with hormonal therapies and have shown that adding one of these drugs to hormonal therapy increases the duration of time a patient's cancer is controlled if they have metastatic disease. So it's really become a standard therapy to add to either an aromatase inhibitor or to fulvestrant in patients with metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer. The data presented at San Antonio was specifically looking at premenopausal women with metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer because all the trials that had been done to date predominantly focused on women who were postmenopausal. And so this trial was unique in that it was the first randomized trial to look at premenopausal patients and look at whether or not the addition of CDK4-6 inhibitors to standard hormonal therapy was beneficial. So this trial was the Mona Lisa 7 trial that was presented. And in this trial, women who had metastatic hormone receptor positive disease all had their ovaries turned off uh, with ovarian suppression. And then their doctor could choose if they would give them tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor. And then they were randomized to receive a CDK4-6 inhibitor. In this trial, it was ribocyclib or not. And so the trial showed that adding the CDK4-6 inhibitor was very beneficial and almost doubled progression-free survival, so doubled the amount of time that a patient's cancer was controlled. And this is very consistent with all the other trials that have been presented with CDK4-6 inhibitors, really suggesting that these agents are also beneficial to premenopausal patients. I think what was also interesting was that there wasn't really a difference in outcomes for patients whose had chosen to get tamoxifen versus an aromatase inhibitor, suggesting that either hormone in this particular setting and in combination with CDK4-6 inhibitors was equally effective. And so I think it really just broadens the population for which these drugs can help people. And so now I think knowing this data, CDK4-6 inhibitors can be added um, to both premenopausal and postmenopausal women who have metastatic hormone receptor positive disease. Um, I think another interesting set of data came out that was looking at um, PARP inhibitors. So PARP inhibitors are agents that really uh, prevent DNA repair and are specifically beneficial to women who have genetic alterations, so women specifically who have um, inherited BRCA mutations. And so previously we had seen data presented at ASCO last year looking at one of the PARP inhibitors called Olaparib. And this trial had shown that when women with BRCA mutations who had metastatic breast cancer were randomized to receive Olaparib or to receive a chemotherapy that their physician chose, that the women who got the Olaparib actually had their disease controlled longer than patients who got standard chemotherapy. So this was very exciting because it's a targeted oral drug um, that can work very well um, and appeared to keep disease controlled longer than standard chemotherapy. Um, and so this led to the FDA approval of Olaparib, and now it's a standard agent that, that can be given to, to patients with a BRCA mutation. 
At San Antonio, we saw another PARP inhibitor, talizoparib, um, that was explored in a very similar manner to what had been done with olaparib. So this trial also took patients with metastatic BRCA-related um, breast cancer and randomized them to get talizoparib, the PARP inhibitor, or to get chemotherapy of their physician's choice. And again, showed just like the olaparib trial had shown that disease was controlled for longer in patients who got the talizoparib compared to standard chemotherapy. And so we're hoping that this drug also becomes available and gets FDA approved. And I think it's really exciting to see that there are oral targeted drugs that can be very beneficial. Um, you know, these drugs do have some side effects, but generally speaking, less than chemotherapy, and they can lower um, blood counts and, and cause some mild fatigue and mild nausea, um, but again, much better tolerated than most uh, chemotherapy. So I think a very nice option um, for, for someone who has a BRCA-related breast cancer. And then finally, I think um, another area that was very exciting was looking at immunotherapy for breast cancer. I think immunotherapy has become a very exciting area, really trying to stimulate your immune system to target uh, cancer. Data had been looked at using immunotherapy, specifically a trial looking at pembrolizumab by itself in patients who have metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And I think the results initially were a little disappointing in that only about 5% of patients who got pembrolizumab as their second treatment for their metastatic triple negative breast cancer or later had a response to immunotherapy. And so there's been a lot of interest in trying to improve those outcomes. Um, and so some data that was presented at San Antonio looked at adding chemotherapy to immunotherapy because there's some data to suggest that if you give chemotherapy, you can kill cancer cells. This can release little proteins that your immune system can then recognize. And then giving the immunotherapy along with it can act synergistically because now you've activated your immune system and it can see these foreign proteins floating around and go after the tumor and, and therefore kill it more effectively. And so this trial that was presented at San Antonio involved adding aribulin, so standard chemotherapy, to pembrolizumab and found that the response rates that were seen were about 30%. So, you know, that's much higher than we would typically see with chemotherapy alone um, in this particular setting, and so I think was very encouraging. And so there are now lots of trials that are ongoing where they're better studying to see if adding immunotherapy to chemotherapy is going to change long-term outcomes for patients. One trial that had been conducted was the Impassion 130 trial in which patients with triple negative breast cancer were randomized to get chemo alone or chemotherapy with immunotherapy. And we're hoping data from that trial may become available by the end of the year. So hopefully we'll, we'll have that data soon to know if immunotherapy will, will become a standard option for patients. So again, I think there's very exciting um, new things that are in the pipeline um, and, and nice to see. So I think when discussing all this uh, information with your uh, physician, I think it's important to, to, one, make sure you have a good understanding of what kind of breast cancer you have. So, you know, to remember there are three main receptors on breast cancer, estrogen, progesterone, and HER2, and better understand which of these categories your cancer falls into. Is it hormone receptor positive? Is it HER2 positive? Or is it triple negative? We tend to, to group uh, cancers into one of these three kind of buckets. 
And then I think when thinking about therapy, it's also very important to, to make sure you understand what the potential side effects of the drugs are and make sure you know um, you know how to contact your physician and their team with any new symptoms that you may be developing while on therapy. Because oftentimes there are good strategies that we have to help patients sort of deal with potential side effects and that can be very helpful. And so always very important to know how, how to reach out to your team. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Twain. That was really excellent and just a wonderful way to start the program. Really lots of information and questions are now coming in online. So already people who have been on programs before know how to ask questions. And, to, and for those of you who haven't done the programs before, we will be having a, a question answer period toward the second half of the program. And so write down your questions and, um, uh, and we will be hearing about those questions, how to ask questions from Candace. Um, I have one more ready to start taking questions, so just be aware that you, you will be able to ask questions. And our next speaker is Dr. Roberto Leon Fair. And Dr. Leon Fair um, is Assistant Professor, Department of Oncology, Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Leon Fair is going to be addressing investigational new drugs and clinical trials, new developments in managing treatment side effects, and quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Leon Fair. Thank you very much, uh, Caroline, for the invitation, and, and thank you to all the attendees for um, uh, making time to hear about uh, some of the exciting new developments that we have in this field. So um, uh, just to echo some of the uh, thoughts that uh, Dr. Tulaney shared, uh, you know, there has been uh, a great deal of advances, uh, you know, both in the arena of uh, blocking the estrogen receptor and uh, blocking HER2 specifically. Um, so it's incredibly important for uh, the patients and, and, and those uh, uh, close to the patients uh, recognizing those uh, uh, different subtypes of breast cancer that one can be diagnosed with. Uh, so I was going to focus particularly on the HER2 uh, uh, blocking medications that are being developed and that uh, are not uh, necessarily available for use in clinical practice yet, but that we have a lot of uh, hopes for in the near future. So as uh, many members in the audience may may know, uh, um, the discovery of the HER2 uh, signaling pathways in, in breast cancer, uh, you know, led to a lot of progress in the management of this disease and really transformed how um, uh, patients uh, diagnosed with this condition do over time. And it really went from being a disease that um, had a, a you know a worse prognosis compared to uh, the HER2 negative breast cancers uh, to one that now uh, matches you know uh, patients that have HER2 negative disease thanks to the development of these of these agents. Uh, so currently uh, the main uh, the main uh, backbone of treatment continues to be trastuzumab or Herceptin, and there's um, uh, other agents like pertuzumab or Pergetta. Uh, and uh, some oral agents as well. Um, so some of the excitement um, in terms of new agents are trying to optimize on this uh, key, uh, uh, this key approach is to block HER2. So one of the new medications that uh, is being developed is a medication called Margituximab, which is really um, a medication that is uh, very similar to trastuzumab or Herceptin. So it's a, what we call a monoclonal antibody, meaning that it's a, it's an antibody that uh, has been uh, engineered and designed to block a specific a specific target, and in this case is the same target as uh, Herceptin. However, the the other end of the 
of the uh, antibody, if you will, the antibody has two major ends, you know, one where uh, it binds the target that we are trying to block in the tumor, and then the other end which can activate the immune system and can lead to destruction of the cancer cells by the own uh, uh, patient's uh, immune system. So basically, this medication has been developed to try to optimize that other end of the antibody that uh, engages the immune system. So the hope is that uh, with this approach, um, uh, this medication will be more uh, able to activate the right cells uh, that uh, may uh, subsequently kill the, the tumor cells that express HER2. Uh, so this is a, a medication that um, is uh, now moving on to phase three uh, clinical trials in the metastatic setting, so patients that have advanced disease. And uh, it's uh, essentially um, uh, trying to demonstrate that, uh, that it could be effective and had anti-cancer activity in patients that have already progressed or have had cancer worsening after um, two or more anti-HER2 therapies. Uh, and uh, this medication has been um, uh, granted fast-track designation by the FDA, uh, given its uh, uh, promising activity in the, in the early, uh, sta earlier stage studies. So uh, in a similar line, uh, there's a, another medication called uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan, uh, you know, and these names are getting more and more complicated uh, as time goes on, but essentially this is a medication that is um, uh, that belongs to a class called antibody drug conjugates, which is similar to, uh, to what um, I described for Herceptin, but with the exception that, uh, or with the addition that in, uh, you don't ha only have the antibody, but uh, this antibody is also linked to a, a particular um, a chemotherapy drug. So this is very similar to um, what we have currently available for metastatic patients called TDM1 or Katsyla. So that's a, um, an antibody drug conjugate as well that um, is currently available for patients with metastatic uh, HER2-positive breast cancer that have experienced progression on, on, on Herceptin and, and even Pertuzumab. So uh, this is a, a medication that is similar to that but has a, a different type of uh, chemotherapy attached to it. Um, the idea is that if you can link chemotherapy to uh, an antibody that goes to a specific or, or targets a specific portion of a cell, you can there be much more precise in the delivery of chemotherapy and target those cells without necessarily uh, exposing the normal cells that do not have that HER2 protein um, to the chemotherapy drug that you're trying to deliver. And uh, the key differences between TDM1 and, and, and this new drug called uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan is that, uh, you know, in the, the chemotherapy type is different, but also they've been able to um, uh, pack more chemotherapy, if you will, in, uh, uh, in each uh, antibody molecule. And in addition to that, the chemotherapy component that... Um, is attached to this antibody is um, uh, highly permeable, which means that um, it has a, a more potent uh, effect on the cells that are surrounding the, the, the actual cell that bound the antibody. Uh, so uh, what that means is that it's able to potentially kill neighboring cells even though they may not have been uh, uh, targeted directly by the antibody, and we think that that hopefully will lead to an increased uh, anti-cancer efficacy. Um, so uh, the early phase 
one trial was uh, presented at San Antonio and showed uh, promising activity, um, you know, particularly in patients that have already received significant amount of uh, treatments uh, or uh, chemotherapy before, and it uh, seemed to be effective both in the patients that had HER2 positive disease uh, uh, with uh, hormone receptor positive or also in the HER2 and the hormone receptor negative disease. But uh, what was very interesting is that uh, there was also some evidence that um, even patients that have uh, low HER2 uh, levels, uh, if you will, they would be considered HER2 negative by our current uh, definitions. Um, you know, there was some evidence that this medication may also be effective in, in a subset of those patients. But uh, this is still very early, and of course, we need to have more, more data to confirm this type of, of, of results. So this is a, a medication that is uh, moving on to later phase studies and uh, is being evaluated after progression on TDM1, and there's also some um, uh, combinations uh, with immunotherapy as well being explored. Um, a different uh, type of agent now uh, moving on uh, that is being uh, um, uh, evaluated is the same uh, uh, process of blocking HER2, but uh, with oral agents that um, don't necessarily block HER2 in the same way that Herceptin does, but um, work in the in the downstream effectors. So one of these medications is uh, called pyrotinib. Uh, so this is uh, an irreversible uh, pan-HER2 inhibitor. Uh, and this is um, being evaluated um, in a phase three study, but in San Antonio we saw some of the results on phase two um, studies uh, that uh, combined this medication with a chemotherapy drug called capecitabine uh, and compared this, uh, the same chemotherapy drug, with another similar medication called lepatinib or Tykerb, which is currently available. And uh, the study presented suggested that uh, that uh, this particular combination with pirotinib was more uh, active than capecitabine and lepatinib. Um, however, um, like it happens with many of these oral agents, uh, unfortunately there was more side effects as well, uh, including more diarrhea, more uh, hand foot syndrome, more inflammation of the hands and feet. Um, so, um, you know, we'll have to uh, to see more about uh, what the balance between uh, efficacy and, and toxicity ends up being, but currently this medication is uh, being evaluated in a phase three trial as well. Um, another um, oral um, tyrosicanus inhibitor that is uh, being evaluated is uh, called tucatinib. Um, this one, um, uh, differently from uh, the previous one that I mentioned, is a selective HER2 blocker, so it doesn't block uh, HER1, and uh, the hope is that by being much more selective in the pathway that you block that you may um, have less toxicity. Um, so there are some trials that have um, evaluated this uh, uh, in different, uh, this medication in combination with other uh, HER2 blocking therapies and chemotherapy, including trastuzumab, TDM1, and and also capecitabine, and um, it's uh, it's showing uh, some promising activity, particularly when you combine this medication with uh, both trastuzumab and capecitabine. And uh, more interestingly, too, is uh, this uh, medication, or particularly the combination, uh, appears to uh, show activity even in patients that have uh, brain metastases. And based on this, 
the FDA has actually granted uh, this medication orphan drug designation um, last year for patients with HER2-positive disease that have brain metastases. So this is uh, currently being evaluated in a study called HER2-CLIMB, which is um, randomizing these patients to uh, this medication uh, to catinib uh, plus either trastuzumab or capecitabine. And, uh, you know, we hope that we have um, uh, good results with that because, of course, the patients that have um, metastasis to the brain continue to be a, um, a patient population for which we need to uh, continue to work hard and, and, and make more progress because there's not a lot of um, uh, currently available medications that can be effective in that setting. Um, in addition to that, um, uh, kind of elaborating on uh, uh, what Dr. Tulaney uh, alluded to in terms of immunotherapy, uh, there is a lot of excitement about uh, the development of these agents that can uh, further engage the immune system, particularly in triple negative breast cancer uh, and HER2 uh, positive breast cancer, uh, which appear to be more uh, able to engage the immune system. So there is a, a study using um, uh, the study was presented using pembrolizumab or Keytruda, which is a medication that is now uh, available uh, and uh, being used clinically for other types of cancer, such as melanoma and, and lung cancer. Um, and using that uh, immunotherapy drug in combination with uh, Herceptin, with Restuzumab. And um, it showed uh, promising activity and also um, uh, showed that uh, patients that uh, have high levels of um, uh, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, which means that in the tumors, when you evaluate the tumor under the microscope, you, you see that in addition to the cancer cells, there are... Um, uh, um, uh, infiltration by immune system cells or lymphocytes, suggesting that the immune system is able to recognize that tumor, but for some reason is not able to completely eliminate it. So um, in patients that had that particular finding on, on the tumor specimens, um, the activity of this combination which, uh, was much more robust. Uh, so this is certainly something that we'll be seeing more and more. And uh, there are several trials evaluating uh, immunotherapy agents in, in breast cancer in general, particularly focused in these two subtypes. Um, and then uh, I just wanted to uh, briefly mention there's also um, other studies trying to bring uh, the CDK4-6 inhibitors that Dr. Tulaney described to the HER2-positive um, uh, population. Uh, uh, currently, those medications uh, are approved only for patients that have hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative disease, uh, but there are a series of trials evaluating all three of these CDK4-6 inhibitors in combination with, uh, with uh, trastuzumab or HER2-directed therapy and, and uh, endocrine therapy as well. And um, uh, I think that uh, with that, I'll, I'll conclude on the, on the novel HER2 drugs, and I just wanted to briefly mention in terms of um, uh, side effect management uh, that we're seeing uh, some, um, some uh, studies uh, evaluating uh, ways of trying to keep our patients with, uh, uh, in endocr on endocrine therapy, uh, trying to keep them um, uh, on treatment. Uh, basically, uh, one of the main reasons why patients may discontinue aromatase inhibitors in particular uh, is the development of side effects such as uh, joint pains and muscle aches. So we have seen recent studies uh, trying to address that, and um, the, the two that I wanted to highlight was one, evaluating acupuncture, 
um, uh, in, in this setting and showed that ac acupuncture uh, was able to decrease uh, the, the severity of pain uh, at six weeks uh, from baseline compared to what they call sham acupuncture, which is basically, um, you know, uh, it looks like acupuncture, feels like acupuncture, but is not done in the right uh, acupuncture sites or, or points. Um, and uh, this, of course, is, uh, provides a lot of interest because uh, it's a non-medication intervention uh, with really no significant side effects other than a little bruising from the, from the needles. And then uh, another um, uh, study that was uh, recently published, although it had been presented before, uh, evaluated a medication called Cymbalta or duloxetine for uh, arthralgias or joint pains related to these medications. And, and uh, it also showed that uh, compared to placebo, this medication was able to uh, significantly decrease uh, the, the average joint pain score as reported by, by the patients. Um, we've also seen some recent data on nausea management. Uh, I, I would highlight the main one is the use of a medication called olanzapine, which is a uh, you know originally developed as an antipsychotic drug, but has shown that um, uh, is able to effectively decrease nausea uh, related to chemotherapy. So it's uh, in many uh, uh, institutions is being incorporated as part of the uh, prevention of nausea uh, for uh, for chemotherapy regimens that are likely to cause uh, severe nausea as well. And uh, uh, with that, I'll turn it back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Leonfield. That was really excellent and outstanding and uh, very important information for everyone to have on the call. And um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, and our next speaker is um, Ms. Stacey Chilton. Ms. Chilton is an oncology social worker, and she is Women's Cancer's Program Coordinator here at Cancer Care. And Ms. Children will be addressing the practical and psychosocial needs of people living with breast cancer, as well as the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Chilton. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. I, as well, am very happy to be part of this program today, and I always look forward to this program, in particular, the updates from SABCS. So now that we've heard about some of these updates, I just wanted to talk a little bit about managing your care and quality of life and speaking about the ways that our program, Cancer Care, can help be part of your support network. So Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone impacted by cancer. Our programs include things like individual counseling, which we offer face-to-face -face in our New York City area, as well as over the telephone nationally. Support groups provided face-to-face -face over the telephone as well as online. Educational programs like this one, practical help, assistance navigating the healthcare system, as well as some limited financial assistance. And all of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers and, as I said, are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in the ways that a diagnosis of cancer impacts not just the person in treatment, but his or her entire family and friend support system. We're also trained to help patients and their supports tackle the problems that often accompany this disease, like the financial impact, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological concerns. Adjusting to and finding ways of coping with your diagnosis in all of these areas that I mentioned will be an important part of your process. As I said, cancer impacts the whole person and his or her entire family. And we want you to know that asking for help, whether you're a patient, caregiver, or loved one, by joining a support group or by contacting our social workers for counseling is a sign of strength. You do not have to go through this alone. 
joining a support group can be a way for you to connect with others who are going through similar situations and likely experiencing similar problems. Individual counseling can provide you a space to voice any concerns and navigate any of the issues that I mentioned earlier. And we found that these connections can help lessen the isolation that many people in treatment for cancer and their loved ones experience. Feeling well emotionally can help you better deal with your diagnosis and your treatment. I did want to mention that at this time, Cancer Care is offering online support groups for individuals in treatment for breast cancer, as well as a dedicated online group for those coping with stage four breast cancer and caregiver groups. We also offer a telephone support group, again, dedicated to those coping with stage four. If you're interested in any of our cancer care services, please do call our HOPE line at 800-813-4673 or visit our website, which is www.cancercare.org. And our website is very comprehensive. You can find a lot more detailed information about all of those support programs I mentioned, as well as your cancer diagnosis, treatment, and ways of coping. On our website, you can also register for future educational programs like these, and those online support groups that I just mentioned. We've certainly learned a lot from today's program and there's always a lot of information to digest. Our social workers can help you understand what this might mean for you and your loved ones. If you have any questions about today's program or any of those free services that I mentioned, please do reach out and connect with us. And lastly, in closing, I just wanted to again reiterate that you are not alone. Cancer Care Services are here to help you and we would love to be part of your support network. Thank you for your attention, and thank you, Dr. Messner, for the opportunity to speak today. Uh, thank you so much, Ms. Chilton. That was outstanding and wonderful. And now we have time for questions. Um, I want to thank our speakers for making that possible, and I'm going to ask uh, uh, Candace to explain to everybody how to queue up for questions, and uh, we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your key question, please know that we will also um, – be um, able to tell you at the end of the call, I'll let you know um, places that you can get your questions answered. But let's see how many questions we can take right now. Um, so, Thank uh, Candace. Thanks. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And our first question comes from Lynn F., your line is now open. Thank you. Last week on the program, Dr. Julie Graylow mentioned that they are now considering lobular as a separate subset of breast cancer. That being, we've got triple negatives, we've got HER2 new, luminal A, luminal B, and lobular. It would be wonderful if one of the doctors on the program today could give us a little more feedback on why that designation was made and what are the particular traits that you are now observing in lobular cancer that gave it its own category. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, thank you, Lynn, for that question. Um, Ashley and um, Dr. Tulaney, would you like to address that in a general way? Um, so, you know, I think lobular cancers are distinct um, specifically from ductal cancers. You know, the majority of lobular cancers are hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, but there are very small subsets of lobular cancers that can be HER2 positive or it can even be triple negative. These are rare, um, but again, the vast majority of these cancers are really hormone receptor positive. 
You know, I think breast cancer is becoming more and more complicated. You know, I think these categories, you know, I'll say generally speaking in, in the general public, we still think of them as, I think, three, still three general categories, hormone receptor positive, HER2 positive, and triple negative. That being said, you know, I think just as you allude to, lobular cancer is more complex, being that it also has multiple subtypes. But I think that's true of other cancers as well. I think, you know, triple negative breast cancer also is a very heterogeneous cancer with multiple subtypes within it. And so I think as time goes on, we are going to become more sophisticated and better understanding, you know, cancers on a more individual basis. Um, but at this point in time, I think most of our clinical decision-making is still really driven by these three categories of hormone receptor positive, HER2 positive, and triple negative. Um, again, I think as time goes on, as we learn more about genomics and how to integrate more personalized you know, characteristics, that will change. Awesome. Thank you. Great questions to start. Thank you, Lynn, and thank you, Dr. Kleine. Um, we have another question now from one of our online participants, um, and um, this is for Dr. Um, Leon Fair. Um, is it possible that 18 years after radiation and tamoxifen, one could develop neuropathy in one's feet? So you could address that in a general way, uh, just so the for anyone on the call um, to understand what what this is about, and and, and um, we and then we of course advise our our the participant to go back to the healthcare team. We don't know all the details, but just that those specific details. Yeah, I would echo that. Uh, you know, it's important to have uh, an evaluation and and make sure that uh, you know that all the characteristics of the neuropathy are evaluated. Uh, it's a bit unusual to have delayed neuropathy in the absence of having experienced at least some some symptomatology before. Uh, you know, there's many other things that could cause neuropathy, such as, you know, diabetes or other medications that can also injure the nerves. Um, I, I won't say it's impossible because we've all seen uh, situations that are uh, extremely unusual and don't follow the usual patterns, but um, it would be unusual to develop it that late in the absence of being exposed to those agents uh, and having experienced some symptoms, um, you know, a little sooner uh, to the administration of the medications. Um, so, yeah, I would definitely encourage them to seek the attention of their providers. And I just also wanted to uh, add a little bit on the on the lobular aspect. Um, I think uh, that uh, um, the, the major medical decisions, as Dr. Tulaney mentioned, uh, are, uh, are mostly based on, on the uh, receptor status. Uh, we still believe that that's the main driver of the disease, but uh, th we do see that this uh, lobular breast cancers have uh, some some features that make them a little different from the clinical perspective, and, and one of those is that they, they tend to have a, a slightly different pattern of uh, spreading, and we tend to see that this uh, tend to be a little sneakier, if you will, um, and uh, unfortunately uh, go to places that are not, um, you know, your usual uh, um, uh, sites for ductal carcinoma. For example, these patients may experience when the cancer comes back, it may come back in uh, in places like the intestines. It may come back in the in the lining that covers the abdomen, and uh, they may actually uh, be difficult to diagnose uh, because they they don't show up in the imaging in the traditional um, uh, way. They don't form a, a mass or a tumor. Uh, but they could actually grow more like uh, like sheets, if you will, and have a more infiltrative pattern. 
and uh, and and that's also uh, in the early stage setting. It also um, complicates the the imaging, um, you know, identification of these lesions because uh, it's more common to see that the mammograms may be uh, falsely negative in, in patients that that have lobular carcinoma, or that at least uh, even if they identify the tumor, that uh, it may underestimate the extent of the disease. Um, so they're making it more difficult to measure. But uh, as Dr. Tulane mentioned, uh, in terms of the management, it's uh, it's still driven by the receptors and, and, and the characteristics of the tumor in terms of biology. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so, um, so we do also recommend that you go back to treating healthcare team, of course. Um, and um, and Dr. Tulane, do you want to add anything to that or? No, I, I think that was excellent. I think, you know, I certainly agree that the lobular cancers can be different in their presentation, sometimes more challenging to di even diagnose on mammography because of that sneaky nature of sort of percolating through the breast. And, you know, again, also on imaging, when it involves the gut, it becomes challenging And from, from that perspective. Okay. And um, so our, um, our next question um is for, um, for Dr. Tulaney. Um, so this question is from an online participant. Um, so what do we know mechanistically about resistance to HER2 antibodies? Is there another signaling pathway we can target upon HER2 therapy resistance? Interesting question. So I think that's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, you know, I think our general approach with HER2-positive disease is to use HER2-directed therapy. And so, you know, I think in general, when someone develops metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer, the current standard is to use chemo with dual HER2-directed therapy, so specifically trastuzumab and pertuzumab. Um, and then after that, we usually go to... You know, the drug antibody conjugate TDM1, which is really Herceptin linked to a chemo drug uh, DM1. And then after that, we're really going from one chemo to another in combination with HER2-directed therapy. And so I think the question is is very good in a sense that, you know, what happens as cancers develop resistance to HER2-directed therapy? I think one point is we currently still always continue the HER2-directed therapy. So there is data to suggest that even if one particular therapy stops working, for example, if you were getting chemotherapy and Herceptin and it stopped working, the next time you move on to another therapy, usually we will recommend another chemotherapy with Herceptin. And this is because in randomized trials, people still do better when continuing the Herceptin um, even with just swapping out the chemotherapy drug. So um, there's clear advantage to doing that. I think there are lots of potential resistance mechanisms um, for, for why tumors can become resistant, for example, to Herceptin. And I think a lot of these touch upon, I think, some very interesting new drugs um, that we just heard about. So, you know, one particular pathway that seems to be activated in tumors that are resistant to Herceptin is the cyclin D pathway. So there are tumors that are cyclin D amplified um, when the Herceptin stops working. 
And this suggests that maybe turning off this pathway um, would allow um, us to do better killing these cancers. And so that's a lot of the rationale for why there are now trials that are ongoing looking at CDK4-6 inhibitors uh, in this resistant setting. Um, and so there are trials that um, look at combining hormonal therapy with CDK4-6 inhibitors and Herceptin. Um, and actually one trial, the Monarch HER trial, was a randomized trial um, that was really comparing the strategy to just chemo and Herceptin. Um, and so that trial did complete, a, did complete accrual, so we may see data from that towards the end of this year. Um, and there are lots of other pathways. For example, the PI3 kinase pathway sometimes um, gets mutated in a cancer that makes it resistant to Herceptin. Um, so there, there are lots of potential strategies. And I think, you know, some of the newer agents that are coming out are really going to help us overcome some of those mechanisms of resistance. So, you know, you heard about some of the uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors um, that specifically target HER2, including tecatinib, um, which is a very potent um, HER2-directed drug. We know about neratinib, so I think a lot of these newer agents um, may be particularly effective. I think sometimes the... Um, reason tumors, again, become resistant is sometimes due to the chemo component. And so, for example, in TDM1, if the tumor is resistant to the payload that's being delivered with that drug antibody conjugate, maybe if we just swapped out the chemo that's getting delivered, people would do well. And so that's why there's now all these new drug antibody conjugates, such as the um, one we just heard about, uh, the Daiichi agent, the DS8201A, which has a different uh, payload. It uses a different chemo, a topoisomerase inhibitor, rather than um, the microtubule inhibitor. So they're just switching out the chemo component of it. So um, lots of new ways I think we're going to continue to do better in this area. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Um, uh, Leon, do you want to add anything to that? Or? No, I think that was very comprehensive. Okay, okay. Very, very much so. Okay, excellent. And we have a telephone question, I think, coming in. Um, so, um, um, and our next phone question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is now open. Yes, thank you so much. A great seminar. Um, I am. Um, I heard two positive 11 years ago, double negative also. I'd like to know the rate of reoccurrence, if you have it a while ago, and if you keep up your D levels higher, what would be the rate of reoccurrence if you had all the treatment? And also I'd like to know about if this study is still being done on vitamin D, you know, for decreasing reoccurrence, and now for lipoic acid, and, of course, B6 and B12 and selenium for peripheral neuropathy and lymphedema. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, um, Stephanie, for that question. And Dr. Leon Ferrer, if you could address that question in a general way, and then, of course, we do recommend, Stephanie, you go back to your treating healthcare team. But nevertheless, um, if you want to comment on this, Dr. Leon Ferrer? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's very challenging to uh, to pinpoint the recurrence rate uh, after completion of treatment without knowing, you know, more details about the specific characteristics of the tumor and, and, and more details about uh, the treatment itself. So it, it can range uh, significantly, but of course it's getting better and better with the introduction of, of new agents and with uh, multimodality therapy. Um, uh, I am personally not uh, uh, familiar with uh, studies specifically addressing vitamin D on the HER2 positive population. Um, you know, I know in general uh, there, there are some uh, data suggesting that 
patients that have uh, normal vitamin D levels uh, are in generally or in general do better uh, from uh, uh, studies looking at multiple types of cancer. And what it's um, unknown at this time is whether correcting that vitamin D deficiency in those patients that have a low vitamin D level uh, can reverse uh, that uh, association with the um, more uh, or with the poorer prognosis. And that's because uh, it may not necessarily be related to vitamin D itself. It may be that vitamin D is more of a surrogate or is associated with, you know, with, with uh, malnutrition or, or, uh, or a lower health status in general. Um, so it's hard to, to quantify what would happen if you maintain your vitamin D levels or other vitamins. I don't think that we, we have a good understanding of how all of this um, uh, interact with each other and how they actually can improve risk. Um, so uh, in general, I would say that uh, we don't have um, you know, solid evidence that we can quote uh, in a randomized manner uh, for, for most of these supplements. Uh, so I would, in general, what I tell my patients is that, you know, for this type of uh, uh, vitamin supplements, you know, if we are sure that they're not causing a problem, they're not interacting with any other medications, and and is not uh, putting a huge financial burden on them, you know, I'm I'm, I'm generally agreeable to um, to have them take them because obviously if it's not hurting and there's a potential that it could help, um, you know, that's that's uh, something that we could all support. However, it's important to make sure that there's communication with your with your healthcare team and make sure that uh, there isn't anything on this potential uh, supplement that uh, could interfere with other medications as we know that many of this have some uh, some impact on the metabolism on some of the drugs particularly with endocrine therapy uh, that patients take for an extended period of time um, I'm not sure if Dr. Tulaney has any more specific data that he could share I, I, I'm personally not familiar with anything else on thank this. you thank no, you I, very I, much I'm not either. Um, I think um, I completely agree with you that, um, you know, with supplements it's always a little challenging um, because we don't have very good data about what their role is. And um, sometimes some supplements we don't even know what the drug interactions may be with other standard medications. And so I completely agree that it's very important to have these discussions with your healthcare team um, just to review all the medicines you may be taking in addition to the supplements. Sometimes those get left off the list, uh, and those are also important to, to mention just to make sure there aren't any known interactions um, that are are there because, again, most of the time, you know, I, I tend to also say they're probably fine, um, but but I like to make sure I've also checked with our pharmacist to make sure there are no known uh, interactions with the medications that, that we know you, you do need to take. Excellent. Thank you. That's excellent. And the role of pharmacists, that's really an excellent point, too. Well, these are excellent questions and excellent uh, um, speakers to address them, so thank you. Um, and our next we have another telephone question, I believe, so um, Candace. And our next question comes from Niala C. Your line is now open. Hi. Um, I have a question about, I think, the first speaker. Sorry, I forgot the, the name of the first speaker. Um, but essentially, just going back to the, the BRCA patients, did you say that the, um, I think the PERP or POP inhibitor, is that better used in combination with an aromatase inhibitor, or is it in place of an aromatase inhibitor? 
I think that question is probably for me. And so I had mentioned that the PARP inhibitors um, were compared to chemotherapy in patients with BRCA mutations and found that the PARP inhibitors did better than standard chemotherapy. I think that, that partic those particular trials really looked at PARP inhibitors being given alone, so they were not being in given in combination with any other therapies. There are certainly lots of trials that are ongoing trying to look at additional, you know, what happens when we give additional therapies to PARP inhibitors and if that could augment their activity. But at this time, the approval is, is to use the PARP inhibitor alone. You know, I think it becomes a challenging question in a patient who has, for example, metastatic ER-positive breast cancer who also has a known BRCA mutation. At what time do you introduce the PARP inhibitor along their cancer treatment course? Um, and so, for example, if a patient is on a hormone-directed therapy, such as an aromatase inhibitor, you know, usually I would leave them on that therapy um, because it's so well tolerated and often people have very long duration responses. Uh, but I think, you know, maybe potentially prior to introducing chemotherapy, considering a PARP inhibitor may be a nice option. There certainly isn't a wrong or right answer at this point in time about when to introduce the PARP inhibitor. You know, we only, the data that we have suggests um, that using it within the first few lines of therapy is, is a very reasonable choice. Um, but again, it, there's no specific, you know, right or wrong time to introduce it, and I think it is really a discussion with your healthcare team about what might make sense for you. Um, thank you. And um, um, there is another question from one of our online participants, actually, and for Dr. Lynn Fair. Um, um, and actually, uh, Dr. Twain, you may want to weigh in on this too, but it's, do you recommend the breast MRI? Um, Huh. So uh, that's a very, uh, a, you know, very controversial issue. I would say there's uh, certain situations uh, in which uh, the MRI uh, may be helpful, depending on the context that the uh, the, the participant is asking. If we um, talk about um, uh, for patients with established breast cancer, so someone that already had a diagnosis of a of a mass. Uh, there's clearly a role for MRI, particularly for tumors that are uh, more difficult to measure or where uh, you really need to delineate the anatomy and and understand what's the relationship between the tumor and and some other structures. Uh, and this becomes important for for surgical planning, particularly. Um, so I think that in those uh, in that situation, when someone has been diagnosed with a with a with a breast mass by other methods, um, an MRI has a role, and it's mostly, um, uh, I would say, dictated by what the surgeon thinks they will need ahead of, a, of an operation uh, to make sure that they, that they can plan the, the surgery accordingly. Um, in terms of uh, screening MRIs, I would say that uh, uh, primarily we, uh, the guidelines recommend to use those in patients that have uh, uh, predisposition to developing cancer that puts them at much higher risk than the general population, particularly patients that have uh, a BRCA mutation or, or another uh, genetic predisposition syndrome. Uh, in those situations, we do recommend um, using MRIs in alternation with 
with uh, mammograms, with regular mammograms, um, uh, because those patients have a much higher risk than the than the average uh, population that doesn't have those mutations. Um, but in terms of uh, screening MRIs, it's, uh, it, it brings additional challenges because it, it's a very sensitive type of test and it will find um, uh, many times lesions or or little abnormalities that uh, end up not being related to cancer at all and are just benign and generally that increases anxiety and, and, and increases uh, the number of unnecessary procedures that uh, many of our patients uh, need to be subjected to. Uh, so the answer, I guess, is depends, <laughs> and it depends on the situation. And and I would, again, like always, uh, have a, a direct conversation about the particular situation with the healthcare team. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Tony, do you want to add anything? That's not very comprehensive, but anything? Yeah, no, I think that was an excellent overview yeah. of, of the uh, MRIs and the, I think, agree, very controversial role. I think the standard at this point is really for patients who, in the screening setting, have a genetic mutation and have a known BRCA mutation or who have a high um, lifetime uh, risk of developing breast cancer. Um, and then, again, I think the important caveat is that they have a high sensitivity but a very low specificity, so a lot of noise um, can appear. And, and, again, a lot of benign findings can result in needing biopsies and certainly anxiety-provoking. Thank you. This has been, I have to say, this has been an extraordinary call. I actually want to thank all of our speakers. You've been extraordinary. And I also want to thank all of our participants, those of you who've asked questions both on the phone online and who've been listening as well. And I, I know that there are more questions, and so as we are about to conclude the program, um, I just want to go over with you, if you do have questions that have not been answered, what to do. So if you have any further medical questions, of course your healthcare team, and we've mentioned that throughout, is a, a wonderful resource. But I also recognize that many of you like to get information um, uh, you know, in addition to your healthcare team, um, to bring to seem to ask more informed questions to kind of get a better understanding um, of of your um, of your type of cancer, um, and so I do often recommend. Well, of course, we have a number of breast cancer organizations. First of all, that have partnered with us on this program. All of them have um, call centers that you can contact. And I often recommend the National Cancer Institute as well as a resource. They have an 800 number. You'll be getting this. We'll be sending you an evaluation form, and in that will be all of the. Um, all of these um, references, so you don't have to kind of write them down right now, but they have an 800 number. And they also have a wonderful website, um, uh, www.cancer.gov, and they have a live chat feature. So it's good for people in the U.S., but internationally as well, but you can post your question, and they will have the information specialist address your question and work with you on that. So that can be very helpful to many of you on the call today. Um, but there are many, many resources for you to get your questions answered, and you'll be getting some of that in the evaluation when you get and uh, get the um, evaluation form from us, as well as, of course, all the materials you've received of all the different organizations that partner with us. Um, I also do want to mention um, also the, if you wanted to have some additional counseling or support, wanted to join one of our support groups, um, or wanted to join one of our online groups or telephone support groups, or actually wanted to access some uh, practical or financial assistance, that you can call Cancer Care um, at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancer.org. And our oncology social work staff, all of whom are trained, master's level trained oncology social workers, will address your questions and concerns and provide services for you, and those are all free. And they're available to you nationally and 
for international participants um, who can participate on our online uh, uh, support groups, our telephone support groups, and can post questions as well that we may want, we may want help with. So um, with that all being said, we don't want anyone to leave the call today feeling that you're alone. You now have lots of resources at your disposal, and we do want you to really take advantage of them all. Um, and um, you don't have to wait till there's a crisis to call. You can call just to connect up with us and to be sure you have information that you need. And we also have just a women's cancers program, which um, Stacey Chilton is our, um, coordinates that program. And so there's very specific interest in many of the issues that many of you are coping with and your caregivers as well. So I want to thank you all for your participation today. I want to wish you all a very fine day, and thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This does conclude today's workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.